Kia ora Aotearoa and welcome to Generally Famous. I'm Simon Bridges and every week I talk to generally famous but always interesting guests about life, love and what makes them tick. Today's guest is a renowned New Zealand cricketer, one of the greatest batsmen in the world, many records and bests, most runs, centuries, catches, and the first to play 450 internationals and 100 in each of the three formats of Test, One Day, and 2020. Ross Taylor, welcome to Generally Famous. Uh, thanks for having me. Hey, um, don't be modest. You still hold, it hasn't been that long since you've been out of cricket, but you still hold lots of world records um, and a whole lot of New Zealand ones. Which are you most proud of? Uh, good question. I've never been asked that. Um, I'll tick that up as a win already. Yeah. I, I, probably probably one that you mentioned. I mean, 450 games. I think I would yep. have been happy to have played a couple of games for New Zealand. Yeah. Um, 290 at, at Perth would have to be up there. Um, I've just come back, recently come back from Australia, and I don't know whether it's because I've retired or, um, you know, a lot of them would come up and say, you know, loved the way you batted, how you went about your career, and 290 at Perth was fantastic. Where When I played in Australia, I never had any of that stuff. So I'm presuming it's only because I've retired that they feel comfortable enough to come and uh, tell that. And, yeah. and obviously being a Kiwi as well. Yeah, it's it's often the time, way, way once you go, they say, oh, that was great, this was great. And it's like, why didn't you tell me at the time? Would have felt better. Yeah, exactly. Um, but no, it's been it's been pretty cool. What have you been up to recently, actually? what's a, I know you've not so long ago you are in India and you're just saying you're in Aussie. What sort of, what's life post um, actually being in the black caps sort of like? Yeah, so I retired in April. Um, the last few, few months of my career, obviously trying to work out when the best time to retire was, uh, when to... Um, and I was doing the book at the at that time, so no, it's been it's been an interesting process. Um, was in India for five for five weeks, um, my first cricket since retiring. Yeah, uh, playing against likes of Sachin Tendulkar, Brian Lara, um, and Co. Jonty Road. Some of these players who I never played um, against, but obviously a few of your older listeners will um, yeah understand um, you know some of the greats of our game. Uh, and then just recently came back in the weekend um, in an ICC capacity. I was an ambassador for ICC at the 2020 World Cup. Um, yeah, a little bit strange to catch up with the boys. I gave Kane Williamson his Man of the Match trophy the other day, uh, <laughs> which was a little bit, little bit different. But um, but no, it's been it's been nice to still be part, part and I suppose involved in cricket in some capacity. And are the likes of Tendulkar and Co. Are they still got it? <clears throat> oh, Tendulkar. Um, I don't want to throw Shane Bond under the bus, but Shane Bond bowled him a couple of short bounces and Session played it like he, he hadn't retired. He was right. There was probably 30, 35,000 people there screaming his name. We'd like to say they came to watch us, but they only came really to watch Session. <laughs> um, and nah, he he's still... Um, but like all those players, I'm sure they don't lose it. You probably lose your eyes and your fitness a little bit, but um, your hand-eye coordination, you never lose Still there, yeah, absolutely. Hey, I want to start at the beginning. You grew up in um, Masterton and Palmy. Are you okay? I've turned out all right, haven't I? <laughs> um, and then now I live in Hamilton. I mean, Palms North and Hamilton, two of the most hassled places. Uh, Do you not like the water? No, I've, I've grown to love this, but um, no, I actually really enjoyed growing up in Masterton. You were, um, I don't know, any, anytime you played sport, you're always the underdogs, um, going the big smoke. Going to Wellington, Napier, even Whanganui. Um, that was always the big smoke compared to, to master them. 
Um, so I don't know whether that that probably did help me out um, at various times during my career in some capacity. I just want to say I've got a brother who's a primary school principal in Masterton. Okay, land then lives at Lansdowne, Lansdowne? Not, not not just close to that golf course. So it's not you know I better be a bit careful here, right? It's all yeah, right. Hundred um, percent. Christmas could be a bit strange. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, why cricket? What, why, when you were young, and I know you would have done a raft of other things, but what what do you think in the end it was that you it was cricket you took seriously? Um, yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, my my dad played cricket. Yeah, I love watching him play. Following him around, my sisters were into sport, but they weren't that into cricket uh, and played hockey in the um, in the winter. Uh, our principal at Cornwall Street School uh, was a big hockey and tennis man, but Cricket was my probably my first love, um, and watching the '92 World Cup uh, probably yep. made me want to play um, for the for the Black Caps. But no, I mean, I I dreamt to play for the Black Caps, but I never really thought it was possible. But I suppose as you get through the grades, and um, there was a bit of a career path. You say that though, but like reading your book um, and and you know what I know about you, you're unassuming about it all, but. You know, you took it deadly serious is my sense of it, right? You really, um, it's not as if this kind of just, you lucked into it. You were deeply dedicated to the the sport of cricket. Oh, very much so. I I come across as probably relaxed, but, you know, I love the game of cricket and, and pretty intense in the way I prepare and, um, and go about it. Um, you know, we had a, a tree at home where we would hit a hockey sock with a hockey ball in it, and I used to just hit balls for hours. So as a 10, 11-year-old, you're hitting balls for three or four hours a day. You're teaching yourself a work ethic. Um, and I, I didn't know that I was doing that. I was just trying to have fun and, and learning it. But, you know, you're hitting balls for that long, you're probably going to be quite good at it. It's like anyone you train hard. Yep. Uh, you're going to be yep. good for it. But did I know I was doing that at the time? No, not at all. But um, looking back on it, you know, that definitely helped me and grew my game. It probably got me into some bad habits at times. But, um, well, they say 10,000. 10,000 hours, well, I must have been. Yeah. I must have been uh, right up there in terms of, um, you know, by the time I played international cricket, it would have been a lot of lot of training before then. And you mentioned 92 and, and uh, World Cup. I mean, back then, who were the legends that you looked up to? This is funny how cricket work, or life works out. Martin Crowe and, and Mark Grabatch had fantastic World Cups and they became very key individuals um, at different stages of my career. But they weren't my favourite players. I guess Batchy came and smacked it, but he was a left-hander. Uh, Mark War and Sashin Tendulka uh, were my two yeah. favourites growing up. I suppose they were a bit younger. Uh, you could relate to them a little bit. Um, I, can re- I couldn't tell you how old Sashin was, probably still a teenager when he played in that tournament. Um, I never came across Mark War, but it was always a little bit surreal when you played Sashin, being a, um, you know, having someone that you admired and, and grew up not necessarily emulating, but um, the way he went about things and, and cricket uh, to then play against him for New Zealand. He is a god in India, um, even yes. to, as we were talking before. It, Just like you, he'd need several security guards, wouldn't he? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 he, would, he would need a few more than a, a couple, I would have Yeah, thought. yeah, um, totally. No, he wouldn't. Uh, you know, it's nice to be able to walk around New Zealand. and I'm He sure couldn't do person. anything. Um, well, I think that's why they enjoyed coming to New Zealand, the Indian team. Yes. Um, the anonymity, um, walking back from the grounds. I mean, Hamilton, I can remember driving home and you'd see 
you know, Sawag and a few of these guys that would never be able to do that and probably never experience that where, uh, you know, coming to little old New Zealand, being able to do just the little things, which uh, they wouldn't be able to do back home. Did you get close to, I mean, in your cricket career, you get close to any of those, you know, big, big names in cricket internationally? Um I suppose you IPL, you would have pl- played with a lot of them. Uh, Rahul yep. Dravid, I played with him for four years. Yep. Um, nicest guy in, in world cricket as far as I'm concerned. Uh, true gentleman. Once again, he was very unassuming, but uh, I just love picking his brain. A great thinker of the game of cricket. And yeah, you're, you're young, you're impressionable, and uh, it's nice to you know catch up with these people You know when you see them around the traps towards the end of your career and, and even to this day. Um, you, talk, you talk in the book about... Um... You know Shane Warne and uh, you know brightly burning light. I mean, uh, what was he like as a character? I got him towards the end of his career, but a fantastic yeah. individual. Um, one of the only people I've watched in the change room where I just watched his every move. Uh, <laughs> you know, just just the way he went about it, and it probably helped that uh, Liz Hurley was um, was with him at the time as well. So Liz was. I can I can remember Liz's at Austin Powers when I was in high school. So to have Liz just walking around and seeing her at breakfast. I hope she wasn't with him when he was getting changed in the changing rooms with you. Oh no, she wasn't there. I'm definitely not. <laughs> but um, no, Warney was a once again a great thinker of the game, a great storyteller. We my first game we won in uh, Hyderabad and um, Rahul Dravid, Shane Warne, uh, and a few other international players, and we we're. Uh, we're in the front row, and he had us on the edge of our seats for an hour and a half flight, just telling story after story, the way he delivered it. You know, I think I said in the book, I'd love to be able to share some of the stories, but uh, they're probably not uh, appropriate for for the book. But, I mean... You get cancelled, mate. Don't do it. Don't do it, but they were, he's had a phenomenal life, obviously taking far, far too early. But, um, you know, he did he did pack a, a lot in his you know, 51, 52 years. We've already actually talked a lot of highlights, right? It's amazing things and amazing career you've had. Um, if we talk lowlights, I mean, the obvious one that's there in the book, you know, throughout is, and it's my sense is that not, not so much that you weren't, you know, there was a point in time when you were no longer captain. It was more kind of how it was taken um, from you. I mean, is that fair? You no, know, I think it's a fair, at the end of the day, professional sport's pretty ruthless and, um but at the end of the day, you're still human, uh, and you have emotions, and and being treated with respect. And um, you know, I didn't think I was at that stage. There's a lot of underhand dealings going behind the scenes that probably was evident to people around the group, but not evident to the public. Yeah. And this wasn't to settle scores or anything. This was to, to no. tell my my side of the story yes. that hadn't been able to um, be shared. I think um, you know. It, Different people you talked to afterwards, you know, knew that things were going on behind the scenes, but it was a lot worse uh, than they probably thought. There's a great quote in your book from um, Hogan from Martin Crow, your, your mentor. You know, he talks about the depths of despair you'd endure around this, and you know, the the trust that had never been a problem for you, right? I mean, I as I say, you know, you you take people at face value, exactly. <laughs> but you know, in a flash, that was gone, and there was such a, in his words, quote, the rotten odor that permeated um, his gunning down. I mean. If I look at it from the outside and read your book, and there's, there's, there's bits I absolutely um, identify with, nothing's ever simple, right? And I'm not suggesting, because I don't know that you go quite this far to say we're talking outright racism or anything, but, you know, you're a, a, a young Samoan man. Um, and what's also true 
is you're sitting there and you don't come from a wealthy family, far from it, right? You've got a dad and a factory mum cleaning. They're sacrificing uh, for you to kind of do what you're doing. And some of this is subtle, right? Like you, you speak in the book about how, um, you know, if something goes missing in the changing room, they, they're they looking around for you potentially. Or, you know, maybe it's when you are captain, um you, for whatever reason, don't sort of have the bravado and the team talk sort of stuff that some of the other senior players um, might have. I mean, is that how, – how do you see it? Yeah, I, I mean, that that incident I talk about in the book wasn't in the Black Caps. That was as a from a hockey uh, – yes. as a youngster in a hockey team. But, um, yep. yeah, I mean, I think there's elements of my career that uh, my upbringing and the humbleness that my family, you know, how I grew up and the respect that my grandparents and, and all my aunties and uncles, you know, put on us, um, helped me out of my career. But then there's also different stages in leadership role um, yeah. as a captain, talking to senior players, you know, the cultural barriers where, you know, as an Islander, you're, you're always told to respect your elders and here you are as a captain at 25, 26, 27, yeah. um, vice captain telling guys you grew up admiring and having a lot of respect for him. Um, that definitely, the cultural barrier definitely didn't help me out in that regard. But you you learn. Um, you can't go through life thinking, oh, blah, 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 or, you know, all these different things. That's that's what happened. I, I would have done things differently, 100%. But that's where I was at that point in time. And, you know, if I was older and a bit more mature um, and a bit more resilient after this incident, I probably would have been a, a better captain than, um, and a better leader in the team. And, and there's some bright lights, right, and I want to come to it because I think actually what you say is um, the fact that in a sense you were, in your words, um, possibly too soon into captaincy, but then out the other end, meant you had a long career, some amazing stats, and we'll sort of come to that. But, you know, if we just just, just dwell on it for one second longer, you know, what, what comes through, and I'm, I am said to you off here, and it's absolutely what I think, I didn't realise there was so much bloody politics in cricket, right? And there's a point there where it's kind of everyone from team to coaches to managements, either in your camp or Brendan's camp, right? But what comes through to me clearly is the sense, you know, whereas he's, you know, able to drink and talk beer, racing, golf, that's kind of not your gig. Again, is that sort of fair? Um, well, I mean, in terms of politics, um yeah, I think you'd be naive to not think that it goes on. And I think people would be naive not to think that it, go, it doesn't go on in other sport, professional sports um, in New Zealand yep. as well. But then professional sport, cricket, politics, office job down the road, I think. And they all have different degrees of manoeuvring, politics in whatever way you want to call it. Uh, it's just that you know, you've been a member of parliament, myself being in a professional team, and the spotlight being on you a little bit more than um, the office job. It was a, a tough time. Um, you, you know, as I said, you're always told to respect people, but at the same time, you're always sort of told to stick up for yourself at different times. And sometimes it didn't come easy, but um, you just had to do what you had to do. Just two final things on the captaincy, and then we'll believe you me. There's plenty more to cover over that. That's more positive than this, but you know, when you think about it now, what does it mean to you? That whole, if my word, not yours, but that saga, if you like. Yeah, I suppose it's something that I didn't want it to define my career and 
um, and people still talk about it when people come and ask me now about the book. Um, but yeah, I still find it strange that, you know, it happened. Yeah, I don't know. Not that you think that um, you want an apology or anything, but, you know, if this happened to other athletes or that in different times, people would have, maybe, you know, put their hand up and said, yeah, yeah, we didn't do this as well as we would have liked, but we apologise, but there's been none of that um, and and nothing really since as well. And in fact, Kim Littlejohn said in your book, um, which I thought was interesting actually, um, if if what had happened to you happened to Brendan, the players association would have gone at it, but for you, they sit there and they're quiet. That's the sort of thing you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're talking 10, 11 years now. Um, but then, you know, yes. different people have talked about the subject and said, oh, we wouldn't do anything differently. I think I think that speaks volumes about the whether the decision was right or wrong. Um, you know, obviously... The ends justifies the means, and in, in their eyes. Do you think it's? Do you think it's changed? Uh, you think things in cricket have changed? No, I don't. I think there's still a lot of politics that go on. Um, you just don't see it out outwardly. I don't think a lot of it's internal. Yes, and as you say, that'll always be there. But I, I suppose, and I said I'd only to <laughs> ask you two more hours <laughs> you before. But you know, do you think it should have changed? If there are things you would say should have should be different now. Yeah, I think it's like anything. Um, it's not until people actually leave the team and have the are comfortable to to talk about it or talk or not talk about it at all. As a player that's been in a lot of different teams, I think it's improved a little bit. Um, yeah, 100%. But I still think we've got a way to go. The last question I was going to ask you about three <laughs> questions ago was, you've got your book out. It's, it's a great book. I've read it. Um, the title's Black and White, and it's obviously with Paul Tom, Thomas. And as the title suggests, race is there. You know, racism at a level. My word's not yours, but that class thing, I think, is there um, as well. Um, how's the reaction to that been in terms of I'm, – I'm thinking about people who know you and, you know, your former colleagues in, in, in um, the Black Caps and so on. Were they good on you, fantastic that you've sort of talked about some of these, or was it kind of like, mm, not sure about that, you've, you've broken a bit of a code here by talking about what happens in the locker room? Yeah, I hadn't really talked to many teammates, to be fair, that have read the book. Right. But, yeah, I mean, the how I, I – we came up with the, the – title were black and it was my story in black and white in black and white and we just settled for um black and white i think obviously coming from a mixed race family um playing um for new zealand and and wearing black and white as colors i'm going to be black and white in the fact that in the way i tell my story uh, i've got to try and not um you know not say anything just because it's either going to upset somebody or um, or to try and provoke um, a discussion. It was just my, yes. It was just my take on on things, and I guess that's what an autobiography is there to, to tell the truth, and um, I guess make the the reader make their own mind up. Do you think it was good for you writing it? I'm not talking about the dollars. You do more than that from about five minutes in T20, wouldn't you? But you know, yeah, you would. Um, in terms of you personally, yeah, you don't write a book to make money. Um, but it was, yeah. the, I think it was very therapeutic. It helped me at the time. Um, we met with the publishers in, so what, in 2013, and I got it off my chest. Um, you know, I think 
Gilbert Anoka, the All Blacks mental skills coach who I was dealing with at the time, said, Ross, just remember this. This would be a good book. It wasn't until then that I thought um, about writing a book, but I always knew that this day would come and that I could tell my side of the story because that was, you know, it wasn't easy in that change room, but that was my way of, of yes. being able to deal with it, knowing that um, apart from Martin Guptall and maybe a couple others in passing comments, no one really knew what was going on uh, at that time. And, um, I'm yep. sure if they did, they probably would have understood me a bit better. I think you're conflating a whole bunch of issues. You don't want to be held to account well, no, on I, I, rising child no, abuse numbers. You can manipulate crime statistics. I, I promised I wouldn't have a tattoo about gotcha journalism. Hang into the National Party's no, attack line there. That, that, I think that, it would be a resignation offence if I didn't deliver tax reduction. Yeah, that, yeah we're, I'm not worried about it at all. Nothing if in there. That sits with you perfectly fine. That's what, we're, that's what we're focused on. Whatever happens in politics, the weird, the wonderful, the important, the thought-provoking, we got you. Listen to Tova wherever you get your podcasts. Thinking bigger picture around cricket today, right? Um, you know, you Samoan through your mother, um, a trailblazer in that regard, and um, you know, Kiwi cricket. Well, any any cricket, right? Um, do you feel like today? I mean, I suppose very superficially, people, some people would say, well, cricket is a white person sport, right? Um, do you feel today that that's n- no longer the case? Are you proud of your achievement in that yeah, regard? I, mean, or, I think you know, I also got to put Murphy Saw. He, he was the first time on uh, Polynesian to play yep. uh, for the Black Caps. And yes, I'm proud of what I've achieved and proud to fly the Polynesian flag. Um, but it, there was also elements where I just felt like I was a Kiwi. Like there was no, oh, I'm out mm-hmm. here to prove that Polynesians can play cricket. Not at all. I'm a Kiwi through and through and, and just wanted to be the best player I could represent and, and hopefully win games of cricket for my country. There's a few island boys, Māori, Pacific Island lads that are playing domestic cricket. I hope there's more in time. But, um, you know, if you look at the team now and, and who likes and, and watch cricket as a religion, there's going there's a lot of Indian players in our um, yep. team at the moment. Um, yes. It's only going to get more of them. You see you see the kids going around. And Has that changed the culture of cricket? I think so. I think for the better. I think yep. um, culturally, you know, we've got a lot of South Africans, a lot of Zimbabwean, you know, their culture's coming into a cricket. Uh, you know, Neil Wagner, BJ Watling, a lot of these guys, um, you know, it's, it's only positive. Um, and then Ajaz Patel, who's Muslim, so, you know, with, with alcohol and things like that, with, you know, you're winning a game and you're spraying champagne, you just got to just step back a touch and and all those little things, and I think um, you know the team have evolved, all, you know, organically over the last decade or so. And you know, I'm sure in the years to come, there's going to be a lot more, you know, Indian, Sri Lankan, Bangladesh with immigration that's happened uh, over the last few years. Your um, your lovely wife is also you know a serious cricketer, I, and I just raise this because it's very topical at the moment as we talk. You know, women's sport. Um, uh, Women's Rugby World Cup and so on. How do you sort of look at all of that? Is is um is is cricket come a long way when it comes to women as well, or not as far as rugby, for example? What would you say? Uh, well, I mean, the women are just on equal pay at domestic match fee appearances, which I think is a, a massive step, and I'm sure my wife would have enjoyed that if that was around. <laughs> but 
Um, you know, she, we have this discussion a lot. Obviously, we have kids and we have a, a young daughter who loves sport, who loves everything. So, no, I think we can only say it as a positive. I think there's probably still a little way to go, but I think we're going in the right direction. The women's rugby, they've been awesome. Um, you know, but I think quite often in this regard, it's actually having it on TV and, and seeing it being accessible. Um, where, you know, if it's not on TV, how are you supposed to in, inspire the, the next generation? I'm sure there is still an element of it, but to see it on TV actually, you know, I'm sure enhances it and makes it a little, little bit easier. Yep. Um, I, I already mentioned this, but, you know, my sense of reading your book, a lot of, lot of silver linings for you actually and getting out of the blasted captaincy stuff and being able to actually just focus on the game, right? Ian Smith says that you are the most stats-obsessed guy he's known of since Hadley. Fair? Stats, 100% true. It was a, a driver. Um, but I, I hope I hope it doesn't come across like it was in the benefit of the team, I guess. Yep. Um, when you're in the game... The game dictates how you play, but you travel so long. Some of these tools are long, um, and cricket's a tough game. You you chose a profession where you fail, you know, 60, 65% of the time, but you're still world-class. That's how you deal with failure, and, and sometimes you just need a bit of a reboot, and that's where your goals sort of came into it. Just gave you a, diff- a different focus. But then it's like anything. When cricket was going well, you didn't need to worry about any of that stuff. You just kept going where... When things weren't going quite well, you know those those stats and uh, and those goals become a an important driver. You're good at them all, but was there a format out of test uh, one day 2020 you kind of preferred? I, I saw something from um, Dion Nash recently. You know, taking us back a little, but he he of course um, he said something like, you know, tests where it's at um, T20 is like bad fast food, right? What do you what do you say? Yeah, I think um, test was still the ultimate. You know, there's so many variables, and you can, um, I guess, it's been around for over 100 years. You can compare yourself to the greats of the game, and uh, one day cricket was probably my best format. Yep. Um, in terms, but I, and I love playing it. Uh, where 2020, sort of, I, my time in my career was very lucky in the fact that just as 2020 was starting was the start of my career, and you had to learn, you know, a lot. Along the way, where you know, I think a lot of these kids that are growing up now, who are coming into the New Zealand setup or any team around the world, uh, they've grown up playing twenty twenty cricket from a young age. So you know, they're playing all these amazing shots. Where we had to learn that they're probably going to have to learn how to play Test cricket uh, the other way around yes. from from probably people at my age. Um, we've talked about the mind games off the you know off the oval, but. Um, of course, it seems to me cricket is the ultimate mind game, right? And there's just so much of that. You got, it seems to me, a lot of help from a sports psychologists and so on. What, what did they provide to you? What was what was going on that meant that they helped you achieve more? I think they they reinforced that the feelings that I was having were normal. Um, you know, when you're in the the bubble of a team, you're 22, 23 years old and you're getting uh, articles written about you, good and bad. And that's not natural, I don't think. No. You know, to, to be critiqued, to do something that you love, but then now, yeah, it's open slather. At the start of my career, social media wasn't around as much where, yeah. you know, once Twitter and um, Instagram and comments on the Herald and stuff, um, you could 
you could try and get away from it, but your family or your friends would tell you in some. They think they're helping, but they're they not. I think they're helping, but they're <laughs> but they're not. Yeah, but no, you're going through form slumps and just trying to grow up in the in the public eye and dealing with that. And the sports psychologists don't have the emotional attachment of the game. Uh, they're neutral. Some of them travel with us. Some of them, you're ringing them up at all hours of the night to to try and get the time difference right. And yeah, just just offload. Um, sometimes they wouldn't even do any talking. You do all the talking, but yeah. They were fantastic, and and not only sports psychologists, your teammates, your mentors, your, your manager, you know, all, your manager, all those things, and sometimes it helped. Sometimes I would have done things differently, but as I said, uh, Mike Sandal, a problem shared is a problem half. I think that's a, I think that's probably a no true saying in the, um, from a sports psychologist point of view. Yeah, absolutely. Um, from Palmy Boys. Um, it seems to me you were travelling. It's lifestyles of the rich and famous, mate. You were travelling everywhere. You were partying with Shaggy in Jamaica. Um, where would be the place in the world, not New Zealand, that you've gone to that you love the most? Or that if you could in a heartbeat be back there, you'd go back? Yeah, good question. Two of the best things I've done was go walk in the grid at Formula One. I wish I took that in a bit more. Um, where was Very that? naive. Uh, it was in Abu Dhabi. Um, yep. So our owner of our Royal Challengers Bangalore team owned Force India. And, um, I asked him for some tickets and he said, no problem. But our trainer was Central Districts at the time, James Amon. I was telling him about it. He goes, his dad was Chris Amon, the Formula One driver. He said that was the most prestigious thing he could have done, Ross. And I wish I'd taken it in a bit more. Right. But still a fantastic event. My favourite place to tour was England. I think the history of the place... Um, it's probably a little thing, but just being able to bus everywhere. Um, yes. You don't have to pack – well, you still have to pack your bags, but you pack your bags, jump on the bus. You stop at a servo. You don't have to You don't have to get to another airport, check in and fly two hours. You just jump on the bus and you can watch Sky and there's PlayStations for the guys who want to do that. You can play cards. You can sleep. The little things that, that make it pretty cool. Yeah, people can be a bit mean on poor old England, but actually it's a beautiful country, I think. And uh, I'm, I'm married to a Brit, so I you know, I have to say, but I, I believe it. What about a um, place you'll never go back to? <laughs> be honest. Go back to. <laughs> you sit there and say, that's the most God-forsaken part of the world. I've set that up too badly, and now you don't want to say anywhere. But Yeah, now, I don't, now I'm scared. Um, won't be getting a posting there. Um, <laughs> well, I think one of the toughest places to travel was um, 2007 World Cup was in Guyana. Um, that was a that was a tough place, and our coach at the time, John Bracewell, said at the hotel we stayed at those are the same sheets um, and bedspread that when he was there in 1984. So um, <laughs> it was just a little uh, more crusty. But then they've discovered oil um, and went over there. Um, probably five or six years ago now, I actually played for Guyana as well, and the place had changed. The hotel is one of the nicest hotels I've ever stayed at, but in 2007 it was definitely uh, an eye opener. I, um, you know, some of the things that amuse me and I've seen around you is, you know, you've you've done it all, mate. You've had sensitive operations and procedures in Zimbabwe. That didn't sound like a whole <laughs> lot of fun. Um, and I love I love the story of you and your lovely wife, the Taj Mahal. You make it onto the front page of the Times of India and you're sitting there in that iconic sort of 
picture like Diana and Charles or whoever it was, except it wasn't your wife. Yeah, wife Ross with wife Leanne. So my manager, Leanne McGoldrick, since I was probably 18 years old, um, my wife was umming and ahhing whether she should come over. And we've always wanted to go to Taj Mahal. And then she just we decided not to stay stay behind. Um, and a few of the players in our team wanted to go to Taj Mahal. We're playing for Delhi. Our owner at the time uh, owned the Delhi airport and, and had quite a few private jets. So the Learjet could only fit nine people on there. There was 11 of us that wanted to go, so they put two jets on for us. And, yeah, my manager, Leanne McGoldrick, wanted to sit on the Diana and do the Diana pose, and I was, didn't know what she was going on about. I'm not going to lie. Um, I do now since um, probably being a little bit more worldly. And Times of India. <laughs> yeah, that didn't go down too well, but I do I do have to rub it in, mm. and I'm probably a poor husband, but every time there's a, an ad on that shows Taj Mahal, I, it's a great opportunity to just just wind the wife up. Just that have you been there? Have you been there with her now? No, not as an. No, nah, she she she's held me to it that I have to take all three of the kids and her back again. So um, obviously, COVID and things things are opening it back up. But it is a pretty amazing place, and uh, I'm sure in the years to come, I'll be able to fit it in and, and take the kids there. As a um, as a Samoan boy now, man, you know, look, one other thing comes through very clearly to me is is a, and there's nothing wrong with this, a passion for food. As I say, from stealing it from Ian Smith, well, not stealing it, that's that's going a bit far. Because Ian was, you you what you were flatting, were you boarding with them or something, right? Yeah, so Ian Smith's son, Jared, yeah. um, we, we played cricket together, and he was the only person I knew uh, before I went to boarding school. So we got on really well and obviously playing cricket. Uh, Jared went on to play uh, football for New Zealand. He played uh, for the All Whites. But yeah, growing up, you know, quite often at boarding school, the food wouldn't be that great. So we used to go down and get a $2 fried rice or uh, just to try and top up our, our meal. And Ian was commentating in in the ashes uh, in, in the UK. So he started to wonder why... You know, Jared was spending a lot more on uh, down at the, the local dairy than he had been <laughs> in the past, but he just put that on me, really. Um, you know, not the fact that his son was having a big appetite, but uh, no, we have. There's a bit of fun and games about that, right to this day. You still a you still a healthy eater? Oh my, my wife's on me, um, right. so I guess you have yeah. to. Uh, the kids, the kids are getting a bit better, but they're pretty fussy, and uh, I guess growing up with not a lot of food and. Mum and grandma telling you to eat everything that's on your plate. I find it hard to chuck the food out that's left on the kids, so I will nibble away at it. But um, no, I've been been fortunate enough to be able to travel the world um, and and experience uh, a lot of different cuisines. A couple of things I wanted to ask you about, and and then we're going to get into some quick fire. Look, um, one of the things that is amazed to me, and you know, I sort of knew, but reading your book, we put in the picture real clear is what has changed with, you know, um, the likes of the Indian IPL is, you know, for a little while there, you were earning a million bucks a season, right? I mean, the money, has that changed? I mean, what's that like firstly? And, I'm, and I think the only honest answer is probably good, but you you tell me. And then what's, what's that done to the game? Oh, I mean... You know, I, I wanted to play for New Zealand, but my once I played for New Zealand, my next goal was to have a freehold house. Yeah, that was, you know, you, you talk to everyone and you set yourself up, buy a house. Then IPL turns up, life changing. It is different though when everyone knows what you're on. Yeah, um, that's annoying. You're expected to buy everything. 
Um, and it's like, okay, nah, but it, it, and some of it's joking. Um, you can you can understand it, but oh, I mean, in terms of uh, setting up your family, IPL has been amazing. I think not only the money side of it. I mentioned it in the book. I genuinely believe that IPL has been fantastic for New Zealand cricket. Not necessarily because the boys obviously earn a lot more, but it broke down the barriers. It broke down the aura. You know, that my first team I had Callis, Boucher, uh, Chander, Paul, um, and all the guys were spread them out um, amongst the other teams. And we we used to watch Australia warm up, and I think we were almost beaten before we played them. You know, we'd watch what their new drills they would do, and being and you know, obviously they they were the best team in the world, and there was an aura around them. But I think IPL broke down those barriers. It made it they were better than us, but it just reinforced that we weren't we're doing the right things and we weren't too far away and then now the team you know you get a world-class side that uh you know if they don't make a semi-final or final uh, or win a competition that which is good that the public uh um you know proud of and and, and obviously scrutinize if they don't make it. in your um journey from Masterton to Palmy to you know around the world and you know I, I take it you know you're still not a you know I call beer and racing man sign, but one thing you have acquired a taste for that comes through very clearly, and I think it started with Hogan and his Pinot Noir is the red wine. So um, favorite go to red wine. Actually, let's 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 add to that. Let's say money's no object here because I look, I picked up you've got a taste for the finer things in this area. Hopefully, my wife doesn't uh, <laughs> listen to this. Uh, oh no, she knew I brought this. Um, I brought a bottle. Uh, it's called uh, Rom- it's a Romney Conti DRC. It's a D- sorry, it's a DRC Latash, and I saw it the other day, and it's up to about thirteen thousand dollars a bottle. So, when I you're opening one. that, then do, <laughs> do, do, can I let me give you some advice? No, don't, don't do think, it at the Taj Mahal with Leanne, okay? Yeah, I don't, and and I need to hide it because I have heard stories about um, some expensive bottles of wine that wives have no idea pop open and put into a casserole or a spaghetti <laughs> bolognese or something. Um, that could be one serious mistake. Um, but no, I don't think I could justify. I've always just wanted to have one. Um, and these wines can stall for 50 to 70 years. So if I still own it, the kids can decide what they want to do, do with it. Not at that level, but you know, I've had some you know better better bottles in my, in my time. And, and it, what you say is exactly right. You know, I made the mistake of being at Parliament a while back and my bleeding father-in-law was over from the UK and he was he was taking some of my best stuff down to the cheeky Indian BYO, right? <laughs> I got back and he drank like a, you know, $400 bottle of wine. I said, like, what is this? Because I, I, I had made the mistake of saying, you know, whatever you like, right? But it was like within reason. Well, there are, there's some $20 yeah. ones no, and there's, there's a, the sort of half a grand ones and the $20 ones are the ones for you. Yeah, there's a there's a pile in the corner. Everyone's got free reign apart from yeah, that rack. Absolutely. Um, are you a snob when it comes to the wine? Oh, I'm getting worse. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> um, as long as I'm not that person that um, feel, people feel pressure when they come around for dinner. But if you do come around, Simon, there's plenty of wine around here if you help yourself. Just that rack, you're um, not allowed to touch. 
I'm looking forward to it. We'll be going straight to that record point. Because <laughs> the problem is, right, if we have two or three of the cheaper ones, at that point in time, I reckon you'll then take me to the expensive one. We should have started the expensive rack, right? Because by the time you've had two or three, the, same. the expensive one, exactly. 100%. Well, so that's what you, I if you're going to do it. You've got to do it in the right order. Start with the good stuff because, you know, you're two or three deep. It can, yeah, it can, you no, can tell no it, I can tell you whatever you want to hear. That's in that, that one, right? Hey, Ross Tate, it's been fantastic to have you. We're just going to wrap up by asking some questions I ask every guest. It's a section we call general knowledge. What single object would you save from your house? Single object? Um, my black cap. That's good. I like that. But I was thinking it could be that 13K bottle of red wine, right? That's what I'd be saving, but no, fair <laughs> enough. What's the best night out you've ever had? Um, best night out? There's been there's been a few, but I think you you win a you win a World Cup. I think you drink it with your teammates. The mace you couldn't really drink out of, but it was still we lost the World Cup final in 2019. But that was still a pretty pretty amazing night in, in terms of you're at Lords, the home of cricket. So I'll say that instead of hanging out with Shaggy. Yeah, fair enough. Um, well, on the other nights where you lose big. I imagine they're pretty bloody miserable, but can they sometimes be quite good? You salvage a terrible thing with a great night out after? If it's just a normal game, probably no. Um, but you made a World Cup final. You've done pretty well to have got that far, and obviously you didn't do as well as you would have liked. Um, and then I guess the next day you, you really see how it's, see what it's like. What's the best advice given to you, and who gave it? Best advice. I'd say my dad. Don't do drugs. Don't ride a motorbike and take your time while batting. Those were the the three things he he told me as a kid. And I tried to do that in terms of taking my time when batting, but uh, there was just a couple of times where I just had to had to go. But but everything else, um, that was. That was just the three things that he reinforced to me. Hey, Ross Taylor, we really appreciate having you on Generally Famous. You've been listening to Generally Famous. There's a new episode every Wednesday. You can listen to them all at stuff.co.nz slash generallyfamous or wherever you get your podcasts. In fact, if you follow us on Apple or Spotify, any of the podcast apps, in fact, you'll get the latest episode automatically. Go on. It's really quick and easy. I'd love to hear from you. Send your feedback to generallyfamousstuff.co.nz. And if there's a guest you'd really like me to talk to, contact the same address. Thanks to my producers, Chris Reed and Jen Black. I'm Simon Bridges. I really appreciate you listening. If you liked listening to this pod, help us make more like this. Visit stuff.co.nz slash support. If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead, The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism, telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. You also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts.